friends at Tivoli Brewing Company and the Department of Communication, Arts, and Sciences at MSU Denver, this is Unfiltered. And here are your hosts, Jay Schrader and Dr. Samuel Jay. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the premise of this podcast, but it's called Unfiltered because of shit like this. Yeah. So um, I am in Brooklyn. New, uh, New York at the moment with Josh Bernstein. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming to my local bar. Coming no, I really appreciate it. You've been nothing but wonder, a wonderful host to myself and uh, my two kids. So, folks, if you're listening and you hear the kids in the background, um, those would be my two kids. But you said this is a super friendly, kid-friendly bar. Yeah, I've been coming here since, uh, you know, they've been open about five years now, about five and a half years almost. I've been coming here with my daughter since uh, she was three months old. Okay. So she was born, then the bar was born pretty much right afterward, too. Awesome. So it's been... For a lot of parents in the neighborhood, it's great because it's one block from the school, so you're able to kind of, uh, you know, meet up before, meet up before pickup, have yeah. a beer, do some work here later in the day, and really just um, hang out. This is an amazing resource to have. So, are these kind of beer bars pretty common in Brooklyn? I would say, yeah, I would say this concept's like increasingly common in that sense. Like here, we have 16 taps to stay okay. with draft beer. Then we have about 200, 250 beers to uh, stay or to go. That are in the fridge as well, and also with cider and kombucha and wine and other things as well. So it's a nice way you can have a little experience for here, then get a couple of beers to take home at the end of the night too. If you're wanting to buy it off the shelf in New York as a whole, are these the kind of places that you're going to get the best beer, or are there liquor stores to carry a good selection? No, I would say you know a lot of. I would say if you're trying to get the best local beer and the small batch stuff from breweries across the country, you'd want to come to a small shop like this okay. that focuses on high turnover. Nothing sits around for more than a few weeks. Okay. So you've always got a lot of turn and churn. And a lot of the smaller breweries that self distribute are going to want to come to shops like this as well. Because they can know they're going to take care of the beer, that they know the beer is going to be the beer is going to be stored cold, it's going to be sold fresh, and it's going to be taken care of from... You know, it's that last 5% that's really hard, I think, oftentimes for... Uh, Think about the, what the shop actually do that last 5%, take care of the beer, and they do here. So that's why it's really amazing. The bodegas as well, but I mean, the bodegas in New York City are pretty amazing. Okay. Where you can go to any of the bodegas as well, and you can go and, uh, you know, you go next to you're going to find Tour de Dale, you're going to find Cigar City Highlights. You're going to find like really amazing beer in our bodegas as well. So it's less about having to go to one sort of like giant destination. I mean, beer is a little bit more, it's sold at shops like this, it's sold at corner bodegas, it's sold at grocery stores. Each one's going to find, you're going to find different layers of uh, accessibility and innovation at each place. You know, grocery stores going to push stuff, you know, maybe the 12 pack, six packs, bodegas, six packs with a single bottle. Here you can okay. build your own in your own way too, or you can buy one single beer and go home afterward too. Okay. So let's jump into your relationship to the sweet nectar. What, what's the history between you and, the, and this and this thing that we call beer? Oh my gosh, my, I mean, I drink it all okay. the time okay. as well, but Fair I mean. Enough. I think like a lot of other kids or a lot of other people I got into beer when I was uh, in high school and just uh, drinking whatever was like available for me through illegal channels to drink a lot of Bush Light, things like that too. And you kind of understood what beer was, but you didn't really appreciate beer. And I mean, that kind of went on for a number of years through college as well. I went to college at High University down in Athens, which, you know, huge party school USA. Like it's like the 10 best party schools in America always on there. And all we did was drink kind of like mass market lager. And then um, we had this great uh, brew pub there called Ohulis, which okay. they had a magical a magical moment where every night for uh, one hour, all the beers were $1 for a pint. So mm -hmm. I was able to kind of uh, be both a cheap college kid and kind of learn my way through that like 90s rotation of, uh, you know, Scottish ales and brown ales, and, like raspberry, we did this and that. I kind of got to know beer in a little bit better of a way that 
you know, yeah, you got to the same place no matter what. I mean, we're in college, but I mean, you also learned that flavor existed within beer as well. And then um, graduate the journalism degree, which is basically a glorified nothing burger. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> end up in New York City after a road trip went awry. And then um, okay. like a bunch of other college kids fresh out, I drank a lot of beer and hung out till four in the morning in New York City. And then in time, I started actually utilizing my degree and asking questions, writing stories about bars, which turned into sort of a more of a a general interest in that third wave of what craft beer really was about. Because we're talking like early 2000s, you saw craft beer really had that, you know, that shakeout, second wave shakeout. Things were kind of on dodgy territory and people were starting to come out of that in the early 2000s. So that's kind of when I came of age and really started writing about beer from a more sort of an inquisitive journalism forward standpoint. And from there, it was kind of off and running. As a writer, what beer offers, beer at that point offered all these compelling narratives, David versus Goliath you know, small businesses going up in old uh, old parts of town, you know, revitalization, all these amazing things that as a writer you're looking for, points of conflict, points of sort of success, points of failure. Beer had it all. And I topped out being able to have a beverage I like drinking as well. I mean, it kind of felt like a no-brainer. And I mean, it's one sense to really be able to do that, but to do it for professionally was not really possible. Right. I think there weren't really all these outlets that allowed you to really tell stories of beer in a much more journalism driven way but I think over time I got as the market evolved desire and the interest in beer kind of kept up I was able to really tell stories for large mass market publications and that sense is like for Men's Journal and Imbibe the New York Times I'm really able to find ways to discuss beer in a way that it was um, making beer seem like it was accessible to a larger audience. So what were you writing about just out of curiosity before you got into beer? Were you doing anything? Like, was there any kind of God, I mean, everything. I mean, like, I mean, I think as a writer, you're kind of like a janitor willing to like clean up any mess whatsoever. Yeah. Maybe it's not the right analogy, but anything. No, I like that. I like that a lot. But I mean, I was writing for, if I go back, Teddy Bear Magazine, Doll Magazine, uh, New York Post, okay. The Daily News, uh, you know, Teen Magazines, anything I could kind of get my hands on as that. I'd find stories, I'd find outlets, I'd pitch them to them too, and then that became sort of, uh, yeah, just a way forward, find stories, sell the story, write another story. And I mean, that's kind of hard though, when you're such a generalist as a writer, I mean, it would be like being a master of everything at a school, being like, well, I'm gonna teach geography this week at college, like next week I'm gonna teach history, and now I'm gonna like try my hand at linguistics. And so you can't really, you can try it, but you're not gonna be great at everything. So I think you get really good when you dive down into a beat. And I got lucky enough that, you know, beer started opening itself up, presenting itself as a, uh, a beat worthy of more full-time coverage. What was the moment where it clicked and you said, okay, I can do this particular vertical? I don't, know, I don't know if it ever clicks, but I mean, <laughs> I don't think it ever clicks. I'm still hustling. Even after five books and like thousands of articles, I'm still hustling every day. But I think once I started getting stories with, I mean, one thing that taught me there was an endless wealth of uh, ideas out there. I had a column for an alt weekly called New York Press. Okay. So I did that every week, um, every Monday for seven years. I wrote a story about me basically getting drunk or being a glutton around New York City. Nice. So I had to find stories wherever it went. And so through this sort of like pursuit of gluttony, I started exploring beer as one angle. But as well, yeah, I'd go to dumpling shops and flushing. But I would also, you know, you know, pound six beers, the diver around the corner and go find this and like do all these different things. And um, I saw there were stories everywhere. So I started writing about every, we have to generate story ideas every week. You get really good at kind of diving into these, uh, the wide world of whatever it is and be able to find ideas everywhere. Then I got, uh, I think Imbibe Magazine with Drinks Magazine out of Portland, Oregon launched and um, second issue, I started writing beer features for them and I was off and running. So I've been doing that for 12, 13 years now. 
and you know, I had the gigs for Gourmet Magazine before they folded. That was their online beer writer. I've worked for anybody you can think of, essentially. Time Out in New York, you know, Eater, uh, Savoir Magazine, Bon Appetit, anybody and everybody they could write beer for. That would take a beer story. I've written a beer story yeah. for them, essentially. You said you came to New York City because you were on a road trip that went awry, but did you know, like, was there a moment when you were a kid that you said, I want to go to a big city? I mean, I think with the big city aspect, it was, um, I mean, my parents grew up in New York City. My entire family, my dad's family emigrated through Ellis Island back in, I think, the early 20th century, 1910, came up from Russia. The shtetls were wiped out during the pogroms. They came here. And then, uh, so they were here, but then like a lot of generations, so back in, if you think a lot of the people left New York City in the uh, 70s and 80s and things weren't great. Mm -hmm. So my dad's generation, my mom and dad left, ended up in, uh, he went to medical school at Georgetown, bounced around. I was born in Rochester, New York, grew up in West Virginia and Dayton, Ohio. Oh, wow. Okay. So for me, New York City wasn't this sort of big, scary, monolith, big, scary city. It was kind of like where I wanted to go visit my grandparents. Yeah. And it wasn't as terrifying, as frightening. But I mean, I never really had it in my mind to come to New York City to really make a dream and make it come true. I mean, I don't know. It sounds silly to say it, but I mean, I came here because I was on a road trip and then I got dropped off in Great Falls, Montana on the first day of fall. I had quarters. I called two friends in Boulder, Colorado, and then New Mexico, whoever answered the phone first. I mean, they had to answer the phone. I couldn't text them. I couldn't right, right, yes. do that, whatever. Who answered the phone first is going to buy a ticket to go there. It's got a ticket to Boulder, Colorado. Spent two weeks there with my friend in New York City, had an apartment in Astoria, Queens. He's like, hey, Josh, do you want to come live in an apartment in our free bedroom? And I was like, yeah, why the heck not? So I basically took a bus back to Ohio. They drove down from New York City, picked me up, got here Halloween weekend, uh, 2000. That's like 19 years ago now. And just stuck around. I mean, and I didn't really set out to like set the world on fire. I was a, I'm a 90s kid, so I made zines. I mean, our goal was to make a national zine that was distributed nationwide. And so... I mean, early 2000s, I worked in a series of odd, terrible odd jobs. I worked at American Baby Magazine. They offered me a job at American Baby, and I'm like... American Baby Magazine? What the hell is that? I mean, exactly what you think it is. I mean, it's just like, it's all about babies and kids, and like for new parents and whatever. But all I did was basically use all the letterhead, and on a typewriter, I would write my friend's letters, American Baby letterhead, congratulating them on their friend on their pregnancy with their girlfriends and different others, which was like... A very 21-year-old thing to do, but you know, it seemed official. It's like American Baby Magazine congratulates you on your journey that's about to begin. And so then they're like, "Josh, you seem really confident in this job. Do you want to work here full time?" And I was like, "I was like, I don't think so," because my friend Noah, I'm broke. This guy Noah, and they had a uh, he was Noah's working at a porn publishing company at the time. So it was like, nobody really, and he's like, oh, we need an editor at a porn company. So it was like editing, like written porn and things like that. I'm like, well, that feels like a hilarious job to work when you're 21, 22 years of age. I have a great title now for the podcast. Yeah. But yeah, I went in and then, you know, it wasn't much of an interview. It was like, you want to work? I was like, sure, why not? And, you know, I mean, honestly, in hindsight, it's like February 2001, they're like, how's 15 bucks an hour? This is like 30K a year back in 2001, which... You know, people even now are like, okay, I can do 30K a year for a journalism jobs. So, I mean, it was actually not as bad as it seemed. I came out of like public college too with no debt because I went to school in the late 90s where it was something like 1200 bucks a, a quarter. And I, if I got, I got like half paid for scholarships. So I got $500 scholarships, which paid for half of your education. It wasn't even like I got these like genius things. It was just an easy way. So I came out, had this job. But I mean, what ended up happening is, I mean, porn company job it's funny for a little bit but it's also really demoralizing for me so uh, yeah so I ended up um, you know it's looking to get out of there too then uh, 
I'll fast forward, but basically, I was going to work one day with the big box of zines. My friends worked at my friends worked at Maxim Magazine back in oh, its heyday. So we had launched a zine raid rookie distributed nationwide by Tower Records. Story of everyday all stars, kind of like uh, you know stories people like septuagenarians that love acrostic poetry or. You know, people that grew up in uh, the South with parents, Vietnamese parents that ran like Southern restaurants and their stories of growing up. So the stories, true stories of everyday people. And it was just really fun to peek behind the curtain of humanity. So I was going to work one day on the, on the train with the big bucks of zines, like 30 pounds. And then what ended up happening, um, yeah, the train stopped at 23rd Street and I couldn't get to work. And then they're like, there's a fire downtown. So we all go out, the train pissed off. So my uh, work was on uh, Blow Canal Street. So on Broadway, so we go outside in like September 2001 and we look downtown and then we watched one tower is gone for World Trade and we watched the second tower fall and it was like, and you just sat there like, what are we doing? And we just like kind of crumbled down like glass sparkling in the sky and then today I'm kind of standing on the street corner with the big box of zines, wandering around New York City, not sure what to do is everybody streaming uptown, randomly end up bumping into a friend, like literally bumping into a friend because all, all the cell service was gone, but we bumped into each other. We uh, end up going back to Times Square, then end up taking a train back to Astoria where I lived at the time in Queens when the trains resumed that evening. Yeah, and then didn't go back to work seven days, got back to work and my boss was like, oh, that was a terrible tragedy after a week, you know, you know, it's such a terrible tragedy, you'll take it out of your vacation time. And I was like, I was like, well, you know what, I'm only 22, but I know it's a big load of bullshit. So, starting for a new job, couldn't, uh, and then my boss was a, pretty much a psychopath in that sense where she would go and look on my computer to see what I was doing and so she found my resume that I was sending out to people on the computer which I should have hidden my tracks better what do I know so one day after lunch she was like hey Josh come to my office nobody in this small office of seven people is talking to me and I was like I'm gonna get fired aren't I so I walked in there and I'm like I'm gonna quit before I get fired because in my mind's eye I was like there's nothing worse than getting fired from a porn job I guess and so then working it and so I walked in there and I was like I quit and so then you know, we talked for a bit, walked out of there, two weeks severance, my last two weeks of work. It's like a month's worth of paychecks. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to be a writer and make all this happen. So then I started pitching. I attempt for a number of years. Everywhere I get a job, I was a copy editor at Us Weekly Magazine, L Magazine, I, everything, anywhere I could get some bucks to keep it going. Attempt as a receptionist, uh, worked all over town, everywhere, and slowly started building a writing portfolio up and just kind of, you know, I'd go to work at Us Weekly in the morning. Uh, I'd write in the morning, go to Us Weekly from 10 p.m., say 10 a.m. till uh, 6 p.m. Then go to L Magazine from 6 p.m. to like 2 a.m. or something, or vice versa, and work all these extra hours just trying to make it happen. Then bit by bit, I mean, it took two years to break into New York Magazine, two years to break into things like Time on New York, but I finally broke in, and then I was able to write stories. So once you break in, you're a proven commodity, and you go on from there. And So, so how much of it is networking? I mean, I think it's... I think it's a game of attrition that I think when you're trying so hard, it's easy for you to have a moment when a you, uh, right I, I can all say, nobody can see this on a podcast, but I'm saving, yeah. I'm saving, <laughs> saving Odette's, saving uh, I'm saving Odette's grilled cheese from pure disaster and I'm going to get my fingers nice and buttery yeah. and, and going to make it up on there too. What you say, Thank you. You're welcome. Manners. Thank you. So we're going to make all that happen on there. So yeah, I mean, part of it's networking, I guess, but it's also not giving up and I think it's easy to give up. I think that's really the thing too. And I need to create a discipline. It's easy to say this is my limit. So that I've had enough rejection, but I mean, 
there's really no limit to rejection. All it takes is like one yes to, I think it just takes one yes to really make all those rejections melt away. Do you feel like if that's if that's kind of your ethos, do you feel like there's a connection that you share with the kind of brewer, you know, the people who are who are starting these beer companies? Yeah, there's a lot. There's so much failure that goes into this. Yeah, so I mean, there's so much like of the punk rock DIY ethos. I still hold to my heart. Like you got to do it yourself. You got to fix this mash filter. You got to like make it happen. You got to sell the beer by hand. You know, yeah. you got to do all this stuff. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not. Gla- I mean, yeah, I get beer samples in the mail, but it's not glamorous what I do. And you know. Yeah, brewers make beer, but it's not glamorous what they do. And I mean, it's a job. It's a job working in an industry, covering an industry. And I mean, it's uh, it's work. I mean, it's work every single day. And I mean, I mean they're busting their ass. Yeah, there's the same way you're busting your ass. Yeah, there's never a day on there too. But I mean, it's just I just think any discipline, be it theater, be it painting, be it whatever. You, you oftentimes people reach a point where it's like I can't do it anymore. I, I've 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 heard I've heard no too many times, and you just like I got to do something else. And I've seen this again and again and again but i mean it's just uh ever since i've been young i mean i've been trying to push stuff harder i mean we went to go live in you know went to go live in london one summer we got these like work visas we get to live in london and then my friend and i were trying to find a place to live we found this like perfect thing it was like six week rental we need six week rental but nobody's answering the phone like, this is a hotel friends like we got to give up i'm like no we're just going to keep calling every single day till somebody finally picks up so you know on day six day seven somebody finally picked up and like, oh yeah, I'm a receptionist at the hotel, and you know, department still friend, come on over. And then, you know, but it just took finding that perseverance to make it happen. And I mean, you know, I think if someone says no to you with pitching, it's just finding a new way to get them to say yes. I mean, you've just there's an infinite way, there's an infinite suite of possibilities of people to say yes to something that you do. But you know, I mean, so the no just crosses off one of those ideas too. And if it's not right for them at this point, it could be right for somebody else at another time too. So. I don't know. You see outside success and they seem great, but I mean, what's. It's not going to sound kind of like, you know, say I get one New York Times story, which I did. My first first one for writing for the food section for beer, like two and a half years ago. I got one story, then what's next? What's next? You're not, you're not done. What's next? Just want to write another one, I'll do something else. So I never look at something as a finite end. I mean, I did one book. What's next? Another book. What's next? Another book. What's next? Another book. What's next? Another book. But I mean,. You're always pushing forward to be able to tell stories in different ways and directions. And so trying to be realistic about it too, that everything you do is not going to be a success. Not every band is going to reach the same heights of their breakout album. And so you got to keep plugging away until you find new resonance and stuff like that. So it's um, it can be a little bit demoralizing. I'm not going to lie to you. But I mean, there's uh, I'm good for a couple of weeks of positivity, then like a little, little, little. But I mean, you just got to recharge a little bit. So tell me... What is your perspective that you infuse into, into your work, into, into articles, into books, if you could just kind of articulate it? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the value or, or, the, or the, the angle that you take that you think nobody else really does? I'm a journalist first, a beer lover second. I always remember that. So I didn't come in the industry, you know, by being like, I really like beer a lot. How can I write about beer? It's like, I really love writing. How can I write about something I love? And so I always take journalism to become something I do. And so um, I have the ability to interview a broad swath of people from you know, Jim Cook and Sam Clasioni after the merger down to sensory experts down to brew house. So it's not just the top levels. I'm able to talk to people at all levels of the brewing industry. I'm also able to translate these arcane, what could seemingly impenetrable arcane subjects and make it accessible with both language and similes and metaphors and stories and just... Um, to make all these things come to life. 
I think in a sense. And so it's easy to say, it's easy to write about beer. In a sense, it's hard to make people care about beer. Why is that? What do you mean? Because I think all too often we focus on the small minutia and not what beer does. We want to focus on the flavor of the beer and not this, but not about the human story. So we don't focus on the humans behind the beer. Do you think that's that's your audience and where you live? Or is that beer and craft beer and, and spirits as a whole? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, if you look, people are pretty dismissive about beer all the time. It's crazy that for something that's so widely consumed, you don't get the same sort of um, cred. Beer doesn't cred that cocktail, you know, mix, you know like cocktail makers do or winemakers or things like that, too. It still has this sort of like a proletariat blue collar thing that's yeah. that's not worthy of respect. And that trickles out into the writing about it. it's like, well, I don't want to write, read about beer. I just can like, you know, I'm drinking it. That's just crazy to me because it's so different in Denver. It really is like, I mean, beer is beer gets like but you're talking stuff on the Denver business journal. But you're talking like it's like one small market, but like right. in the national right. one small specific market that's evolved. It's about 10 years beyond other cities. too. It just makes me realize that like I live in a fish. Bowl. You do. Yeah, but I mean, on the national basis, most people don't care. Yeah, let's be let's be real. I mean, but my job is how do you get people, you know, people in Denver, people in San Diego, people in Portland, Oregon are invested in their micro in their scenes because it's so much of their daily life. But I mean, New York City, man, we got forty odd breweries, and like it's one game of many in this town. Yeah. What was your first? What was your first craft beer? You, you talked about like going to cheap beer and all that, but what was what was the first one where you said? This is different than Coors Light, Bush Light. Oh man, even going back, I mean, the ones I still hold true to this day are like Great, you know, Great Lakes, Evan Fitzgerald, Bellstarted Ale. I mean, I'm a Midwest kid, so those are ones that were very foundational at the time as well. On that, but I mean, I think to go back to really, why my job is to look at this, make people across the country that may not think about beer to care about beer on a larger scale, on stuff like that. That, yeah, you may care what's happening in Rhino and your neighborhoods, the next new brewery to pop up there, close down. A person in Nashville, Tennessee doesn't care about that. How do I find the connections that exist between Nashville and Denver and, some, and Topeka and to create these three lines about this all together? That's my job, to kind of see how these trends echo out on a national basis, identify the, the subjects and the, place and the people that are moving things forward, interview them and make these stories feel real to people too in a way that makes them authentic to them. What's this new book? Tell me about the new book. Yeah, Drink Better Beer, um, which could be seen as drink beer better, but nobody likes a a blowhard or somebody tells you what to do. I don't. <laughs> I mean, this idea is that uh, six years ago when Complete Beer Course came out, now that's been sold like 100,000 copies distributed in China, translated to China, South Korea, audiobook, all the metric success. That's really about how drink these beers, understand how beer world fits together through the stories and the taste and the profiles. I mean, that's so important, but we've moved beyond style. And the beer world has really blown up whole cloth in the last five years and kind of rearranged itself in the new ways, shapes, and forms. The taproom pathways, beers direct consumer, hazy IPAs. We're going so far, so fast right now that we haven't really ever taken a point to stop and ask ourselves what's happening. So it's a book where it really makes sense of where we're at. And I think just these new bars, these taprooms open up, these new breweries open up. We never ask ourselves, what's it about? What's it actually mean? Is a double dry hop beer with five pounds per barrel or a good thing? And why did we go away from IBU intensity? And how did we get here? And so to identify all these things, I identified what I thought were important issues in the beer world and really I pinpointed people that were the experts that could tell it about. So it's almost like a grand scale narrative length uh, journalistic foray through modern beer to make sense of where we're at to where we're going. 
So without giving anything away, because people should go out and buy the book. Sure, what why some, not? What I mean, were some conclusions that you drew that you were surprised by? Uh, that we're obsessed about IPAs, for the, that our obsession for double dry hop IPAs, that adding more hops to a beer can make actually create bad, it's not great. That you know, adding too much plant material can actually cause like ABV to escalate, can cause diacetyl and off flavors to form. Yep. So when you're adding all that plant material, it can be negative. And I think also is that how do you separate yourself from a pack where you can buy all your yeast strains from a lab? And so this is why spontaneous fermentations are possible are yep. popping up, and this is why we're turned into Norwegian yeast strains like Kvike and things like mm -hmm. that too. And um, just ways of differentiation in the marketplace are super important right now too and how we go about doing it, but also understanding why tap rooms are important. Understand when you walk into a shop what you should be looking for. Mm -hmm. Just and having people that are actually the the players who are invested in this tell you these stories too. But I also wanted to focus on people that don't get as much love, like uh, sensory scientists and specialists, mm -hmm. people like that that understand that can talk about what they're doing and really yeah, and really help you understand. Like, so with the Algash, I sat through Sensory for, you know, the entire day to talk about what's it take for a brewery to create the same beer time and time again. Why are brewers traveling to the Pacific Northwest to pick not just select hops, but select hops in certain windows to select certain flavors? And so just understanding, peeling it back to the very beginning and not the end. That's what the book is. I mean, it's the beginning and the intent to create the beer in your hand. There's very few lists in the book, like try these five beers before you die. It's more like understand these hundred things and you're going to be, you can understand the beers more intimately and feel more confident to navigate this world. So are you trying to raise the profile of craft beer um, like in a way that maybe we might wine? I'm trying to engagingly raise the um, level of education in a way that I'm, uh, I'm giving you your kind of like medicine with a whole heap of sugar and a whole heap of hops. And yeah. so... You know, in a way that's really fun, accessible, engaging. And I mean, that's what I try to pride myself on as a writer. That thing, I, I'm not dull writing, and that's it's hard to talk. You're a wonderful writer. Yeah, trying to talk. I try to do that without helping smoke up my ass. I mean, that's really the thing. It's like, how do you make something that can be kind of dry and boring and make it come to life in a way? Yeah. And that and that's it. And that's what I want to do. And I think it can be pretty impenetrable the beer world overall too. And I think we forget that only 15-20% of America actually drinks so we consider a craft beer yes. so there's a whole swath of humans that that maybe drank two IPAs so like I know about beer now or other people that just need a lot more sort of like understanding about what beer is and where it's going what are you worried about um I'm worried about you know people chasing trends without chasing quality so or chasing yeah well, you know, you're chasing, you can make any beer once, can't make any beer great, but can you make that beer 50 times? And should you, whatever. So there's been a lack, I think, of some craftsmanship and repeatability over there in the marketplace right now, and that's been a big issue. Look, if it's a taproom-focused brewery, it's super fun. Why not? I mean, let them rock it out. I mean, there's no, you go to a restaurant to have an idiosyncratic expression of a chef's vision, right? You don't go there to have the same thing. But I mean, I just fear there's a copycat, cookie-cutter mentality of like, you know, you know, insert London Ale 3, add mosaic and citra, ferment 12 days, put beer on tap. That's, you know. Is, I guess, is that bleeding into the home brewer or is that a, is that a, uh, a kind of influence of the home brewer kind of industry? Home brewers and the professional brewers, I mean, they're one the same right now. That same sort of inventiveness that happened in the home brewing scale. How many people have you heard like, I love beer, I'm going to be a home brewer. It's everybody. So many. I mean, so I think this home brewer inventiveness is kind of, has kind of pervaded into this mentality of what it means to be a brewer in the modern day. So 
I'm making five gallons at a time. I'm making 15 barrels at a time. I'm making this and that too. Yeah. So I don't know. I think this too, but there's just, um, there's a fear burnout that you can, I know that creativity is hard to have on a mass scale. So how can you always be original and still make it happen and do the best of your abilities? I mean, so it's arguably, you know, aside from a scientist, the smartest person I've talked to on this podcast. What, as a home brewer goes and tries to scale, aside from a good business mind, what is the most important component of that success? A great business mind. <laughs> Another good, but it's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, a great business yeah. mind, I mean. Um, I think you need, a good, you need a great business mind first and foremost. You need somebody to write a business plan. You need somebody to build it out. You need to surround yourself with the people that know what you don't. And I think you don't have to have a great business plan, but you have to have something you do well, and you have to surround yourself with other people that do it better than you. And you have to understand your, your deficiencies as a human. And that's the hardest thing ever. It's like, what do you not do well? And you know, admit that you don't do that thing well, then admit that you need help. What's and the feeling out here? Is it, is, it, is it that kind of business brew partnership, or is it a brewer that goes, I can do this? Like, what is what is the trend? Is there is there a trend? There's a lot. I mean, in, in New York City, there's a lot of homebrewers one pro. Okay. And um, like we that. have. I mean, that's just because only people that live in New York City are crazy enough to think they can, uh, you know, make it happen. So that's kind of what I see happening. It's like homebrewers here. They're like, of course, it makes sense to spend a million and a half dollars opening this neighborhood. What a great idea, in New York City. Okay, so I know you got to run, so I'm going to give you some time. Yeah. Uh, if folks are visiting uh, Brooklyn. And then also the greater kind of New York area. Yeah. Can you just give give them some spots to go for just good craft beer? Yeah, I think if you think about what Denver has going for you, you have neighborhoods like Rhino where you can bounce around an awful lot too. So New York City's got that same sort of ability. So if you went to a neighborhood called Gowanus, okay. you know, at Gowanus, you can go to other half brewing. Carroll Gardens, you can have like great haze bombs. Okay. You go around the corner, you go to Folk's Beer, have great German style lagers, and you walk up the road. Uh, Spenale, so New York State influenced ingredients, and you walk further over there, then you're going to have opening up shortways Wild East, which is going to have um, wild fermented beers. Yes. Then there's Strong Road, which has all New York State hops and grains, and you have Threes, which has classic Pilsners and other things as well. And I mean, it's just, or alternately, I would go out to uh, maybe Bushwick, East Williamsburg, you go to Grimm, to have terrific uh, sours and IPAs, yeah. Interborough. Hip hop influenced hazies and other great stuff to KCBC, which is stylistically diverse. Um, but I mean, any neighborhood in New York City, or not any, but a lot of neighborhoods in New York City have multiple breweries now, specifically Brooklyn and Queens. Manhattan's got nothing. I mean, the real estate realities in Manhattan are just there. So I think you could go out to, even in Ridgewood, Queens, now you've got um, Evil Twin to open up a new brewery, get check style pours, and then you can go out to. Um, Queens Brewery. Then from there you can go out to like Bridge and Tunnel. So you can have like just or Long Island City. Of, Long Island City you can do like Fifth Hammer to Rockaway Brewing to oh and you could just go all these places. So just pick a neighborhood and you know lace up your sneakers, your shoes, and walk around. You don't have to like, jump in the car and go from A to B to C. I think that's what's really. Um, if you go during the day, yeah, a lot of the brewery. Not all of them are. I think some of the ones that are a bit more. I would say the majority of breweries during the weekend are very family friendly. Um, other ones, you know, ones that are super popular, like other half, you're going to have a harder time getting your kids in there. So go on a Monday or a Tuesday during the day and not a Saturday during the day. But, you know, go early in the day, go 12 to 3 o'clock, you'll find a lot of that. We don't have as much outdoor space as Denver because different climate and also different realities of what real estate costs. That, that, that little courtyard can be a 
could be an eight-family apartment building. Exactly. <laughs> um, Josh Bernstein, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Where can we find your book? Just go to Amazon. Uh, and, and yeah, anywhere that anywhere the better books are sold. I, that's um, you go to my website, joshuambernstein.com, and then I'll send you a book in the banana mail, or if you want, I'll go to the post office or just. Um, Amazon, Barnes Noble, and your your best independent bookstores cool. across the nation. That's uh, you know, the monolith. Amazon's great if you're in your underwear at home, but yeah. if you want to support your local business, it's also good to get out the door and uh, you know keep the money in your community. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. I yeah, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you for for everything for hosting us for the fantastic grilled cheeses. Yeah. I'll let you go be a dad. By the way, it was you were you were a fantastic father because I saw you treated my kids. That yeah, that's awesome. a, a tour of grilled cheese in half. <laughs> Figured out the games uh, that. that we had the games that come occupy for the first 10 minutes until they moved to the iPad, which is a yeah. progression I'm usually pretty comfortable with. That. Exactly. Well, Josh, thank you so much. You have a wonderful evening. Okay? Yeah, I'm going to get a kid from school and uh, make some dinner match right. happen. So. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thank you.